Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 14, Numbers chapter 12. Well, in Numbers chapter 11, we heard of the general rebellions of the people of Israel and the resident aliens, those who were traveling with Israel but didn't wish to be Israelites. And they lived on the outskirts of the camp of Israel when they were traveling through the wilderness. And they were accused in chapter 11 of being the instigators of at least some of the rebellions. Now in chapters 12, uh, rather Numbers chapter 12, we're saddened to find that those closest to Moses also grumble and rebel. Aaron, the high priest Moses' brother, Miriam, Moses' sister, who's the leader of the Women in Israel do the same thing. Now watch closely when we read Numbers 12 because we're going to see some important patterns develop around Moses that are going to be transposed to Yeshua. Now Moses is a mediator for God our Father and for mankind, as will be, of course, Yeshua, Jesus the Christ. Now allow me to comment a little bit about the word mediator because it has a very specific meaning. Sometimes you'll hear or see the word intermediary used almost as a synonym for mediator. Not only is that uh, quite incorrect from a technical standpoint, but it also has the greatest of theological and spiritual ramifications such that we have to decide whether Yeshua, for instance, is an intermediary or a mediator. This is one of those words that one must pay attention to when the doctrines of a denomination or a religion are being discussed because there's a vast and critical difference that separates a mediator and an intermediary. Now let me point out that this issue Mediator versus intermediary is a very ancient one, and it was hotly discussed and debated long before Jesus ever entered the scene. And this issue centered around the nature of the Word of God, the Memra, the Logos. And what the essence of the Word amounted to. Was he indeed a mediator, or was he an intermediary? Or in fact, was the term, the word, nothing but another way of speaking of the godly attribute of wisdom. And that's a matter for another discussion, though. Now, the difference is essentially this. An intermediary is a being who's halfway between God and man. In other words, this intermediary is not God, But he's also not a man. He's something else altogether. Angels might be seen as good examples of intermediaries. They're not men, but they're also not God. They're something else entirely. Angels, in my opinion, are indeed intermediaries. And in fact, we're going to see several mentions of some ill-defined spiritual essence or being in the Bible that's called the angel of the Lord. 
Okay. And the arguments are varied among scholars whether what this is referring to is simply another regular angel with a specific assignment, or perhaps this angel of the Lord is just another of the several manifestations of God himself, or even simply another name for the word, the Logos, the Memra. However, a mediator is not an intermediate being. A mediator is not some other kind of creature with a status or a station that's somehow between the two. Therefore, angels are not mediators. Biblically, a mediator could be a man, or he could be God. But he can't be some kind of in-between creature, neither man nor God. He's an agent. He's someone who carries out instructions, yet as a being... He's either on par with God or with man. Now, a mediator is also an assignment or even a characteristic or an attribute of someone or something. The high priest of Israel, Aaron in the book of Numbers, was a mediator. So was Moses. And since the New Testament makes it clear that Jesus is our high priest and the mediator of the new covenant just as Moses was the mediator of the earlier covenant at Mount Sinai, we can use the pattern and example that Moses shows us to help us better understand the true nature of the role of Yeshua, our Messiah. So you can see why it's important to distinguish, especially as it comes to Jesus, whether he was an intermediary or whether he was a mediator. Because it comes down to Was Yeshua God, or was he man, or was he something in between? Moses was a mediator. He wasn't a specially designed creature halfway between a God and a man. Therefore, neither is Jesus an intermediate being halfway between a God and a man. Okay, Okay, let's read Numbers 12 and learn a little bit more about God's special agent, the mediator, Moses. Numbers chapter 12, page 162 if you're in the complete Jewish Bible. Miriam and Aharon began criticizing Moshe on account of the Ethiopian woman he had married, for he had in fact married an Ethiopian woman. They said, Is it true that Adonai has only spoken with Moses? Hasn't he spoken with us too? And Adonai heard them. Now this man Moshe was very humble, more than more so than anyone on earth. Suddenly, Adonai told Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out here, you three, to the tent of meeting. Three of them went out. And Adonai came down on a column of cloud and stood at the entrance to the tent. He summoned Aaron and Miriam, and they both went forward. And he said, Listen to what I say. When there is a prophet among you, I, Adonai, make myself known to him, In a vision, I speak with him in a dream. But it isn't that way with my servant Moses. He is the only one who is faithful in my entire household. When I speak with him, I speak with him face to face and clearly, not in riddles. He sees the image of Adonai. So why weren't you afraid to criticize my servant Moses? The anger of Adonai flared up against them and he left. But when the cloud was removed from above the tent, Miriam had Surat, 
Right? It's probably leprosy in most of your Bibles. Sarat, as white as snow. And Aaron looked at Miriam, and she was white as snow. And Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, please don't punish us for this sin we have committed so foolishly. Please don't let her be like a stillborn baby with its body half eaten away when it comes out of its mother's womb. And Moses cried out to, to Adonai, Oh, God, I beg you, please heal her. And Adonai answered Moses, If her father had merely spit in her face, wouldn't she hide herself in shame for seven days? So let her be shut out of the camp for seven days. And after that, she can be brought back in. Miriam was shut out of the camp for seven days. And the people did not travel until she was brought back in. Afterwards, the people went on from Hatzrot and camped in the Paran Desert. The high priest Aaron and his sister Miriam, who was a prophetess, challenged Moses' position and authority. And verse 1 tells us that the catalyst for that rebellion was Moses' wife. Now Moses' wife is referred to here by many Bibles, including the complete Jewish Bible, as that Ethiopian woman. Now some versions will say that Cushite woman, which is correct. What's the difference? Well, the disagreement comes from whether one believes that Ethiopia in North Africa was indeed the territory founded by Cush, or was Cush's territory actually the area that also included Midian. In fact, the original Hebrew is Cushith. Cushith. Which literally means Cushite. So what did Aaron and Miriam have against Moses' wife, the Cushite woman? Well, we're not told. If we take this at face value, it could well have been a racial issue. There's been a lot of speculation by rabbis and sages and scholars over just what is meant by Cushite as used in this verse. For sure, it's referring to the family tree of Cush, who was a member of the line of the cursed Ham. And we know that Cushites were black-skinned people, usually identified with early Ethiopia, but that's not entirely agreed to by all scholars. However, this all presents a problem for us. Because in Exodus, we're told that Moses married Sipporah, a Midianite woman is what she was called, a Midianite woman. Midianites and Cushites are separate tribes. Midianites were not necessarily a race of black people. There are a couple of general lines of thought on this matter. First is that perhaps the Cushites occupied Midian at this point in their history and not yet Ethiopia. Next is that the woman spoken of here is another wife of Moses. It's not referring to Sipporah. Right? Now, I'm afraid that both of these are speculation, and they're even plausible to some degree or another. However, this single allusion to this Cushite wife of Moses is all there is in Scripture to even hint that Moses could have had more than one wife, so I, I'm not too convinced that was the case. 
What is becoming clear over time is that at some very early point in history, the term Kushite became more of a racial identification than a tribal one. In other words, while we recognize, generally speaking, that black humans come from Africa, the scientific anthropologic term for them does not specify a specific tribe, but a race, right, with a skin color being the primary characteristic. That said, technically, DNA shows that all black-skinned folks did have an ancient common ancestral line, and while that very first black-skinned person hasn't necessarily been pinpointed in the scientific community, the Bible indicates that it was probably Cush. Right? Perhaps it was his father Ham, or grandfather rather Ham, uh, father Ham. Excuse me. Thus, it is not unreasonable to speculate that Moses' wife Zipporah was indeed probably a very dark-skinned person who on one hand would have been racially described as a Cushite, but tribally she was a Midianite. Midianites were typically rather dark-skinned, but other physical features were different enough from African people so as not to be identified as a tribe of racially black people. But as we all ought to have learned by now, racial and tribal intermarriage was completely usual and normal. Right. So it would have not surprised anybody of that era that a very dark-skinned woman belonged to a Midianite tribe. Now, discounting that the possibility that Moses had a second wife, being a Cushite woman, some have wondered why, just now, would Aaron and Miriam suddenly express such shock over Moses' choice of Sipporah as a wife? since he had married her quite some time earlier, before the exodus uh, from Egypt, as a matter of fact. But that's pretty easily solved in that we're told explicitly that Sipporah did not accompany Moses back to Egypt, but rather went to rejoin him on Israel's march when out in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt. So it could well be that Aaron and Miriam had just now met the woman and found her obviously not to be a Hebrew, at least not even Semitic, probably, so it seemed unacceptable to them. Now, I kind of lean in that direction as a probability. After all, the rebellion of the non-Hebrews, the resident aliens from Numbers 11, had just occurred. It had caused a lot of death and destruction within Israel's camp. So for Moses to show up with a non-Hebrew wife, even probably non-Semitic, would have been a pretty sensitive issue right about at that moment. Ah, but the real reason for Miriam and Aaron's lashing out at Moses wasn't his wife at all. It was that they were jealous of Moses' close relationship with God. As they said in verse 2, hasn't God spoken through us as well? So the great rabbis say that Moses didn't actually overhear this grumbling of his siblings because it wasn't addressed to him. But God heard it. Therefore, that's why we don't see any references to Moses going to God with this problem and this complaint about Miriam and 
Aaron as he had with the earlier complaints from the general population of Israel. And in the text that immediately follows up in verse 3 by letting all of us know that the charges implicit in their grumbling were false, that Moses was not doing anything wrong and did not hold himself up as special or aloof. In fact, God says he's the humblest man on earth. Now, I just said that the text said Moses was humble. Your Bibles might say meek. Okay. The Hebrew word is anav. And it's often translated as meek, especially in the King James Version and some older versions based on Latin texts. Now, meek isn't necessarily wrong. But you know, it's a word that's kind of obsolete within our modern day English. So we have a little bit of trouble Getting it right, just what meek means. Humble, I think, is probably the best word in our modern vocabularies to express what it's getting at. Humble. And it's the kind of humble, enough is, that one would find in a very poor person who knows they have no power and that they have very limited ability to control their own lives. And yes, even in the Greek based New Testament where we see Christ say that the meek shall inherit the earth you can substitute humble and be a lot closer to the mark the humble shall inherit the earth now the idea being it's not going to be the leaders of the world with all their great plans and huge egos and even larger armies that are eventually going to rule the planet and the people although they certainly think they're going to Rather, it's the regular folks who don't have any power or delusions of grandeur who will rule with Messiah. And sometime down the line, I'm going to show you that in Christ's day, the term meek or humble, anaf, tended to point, very interestingly, to an even more specific group of people as identified in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the Lord now calls Aaron and Miriam on the carpet, and he summons them. And Moses, along with them, to come to the tent, because this matter has to be dealt with in a legal way. But a question that raises some real interesting issues arises here. Which tent is being spoken of? There are, at times, two tents called the Oel Moed, which means tent of meeting. The tent, or two tents, were where God would meet with man. There was a tent on the outskirts of the camp that's spoken of in earlier chapters. Listen, let's just go back a little bit to Numbers 11.23. You don't have to go back in your Bibles, I'll just read it to you. Numbers 11.23 Adonai answered Moses Has Adonai's arm grown short? Now you will see whether I said what will happen or not. Moses went out and told the people what Adonai had said. There he collected 70 of the leaders of the people and placed them all around the tent. Adonai came down in the cloud, spoke to him, took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. 
When the Spirit came to rest on them, they prophesied then, but not afterwards. There were two men who stayed in the camp, one named Eldad, the other Medad, and the Spirit came to rest on them. They were among those listed to go out to the tent, but they hadn't done so, so they prophesied in the camp. You following what I'm saying? This is talking in this verse about a tent that wasn't inside the camp of Israel. So it wasn't talking about the wilderness tabernacle that was in the middle. There was also, of course, that tent that was located in the middle where the priesthood operated. Listen to Numbers 2.1. Adonai said to Moses and Aaron, the people of Israel are to set up by a, clan, a camp by clans, each man with his own banner under his clan symbol. They are to camp around the tent of meeting, but at a distance. Those camping on the east side toward the sunrise are to be under the uh, camp of Judah, all right, and so on and so forth. Till we, we understand thoroughly that there's this one tent that's at the center with the tribes camped all around them. Now, most Gentile scholars say, oh, it was just the same tent. Only at some point, the one on the outskirts got moved to the center of the encampment. Ancient rabbinical sources say, oh no, it was indeed two separate tents for two separate purposes. Now we're clearly told that the wilderness tabernacle is the tent at the center to where the Levites immediately surround it and that all the other tribes surround them forming like an outer circle. Um, And when we look very closely at Holy Scriptures we find some distinct differences in how the tent of meeting between God, uh, uh, when God came down to meet with them at the tent of meeting, just what took place. And it depended on which tent that they met at as to what took place. It is only at the priestly tent, the wilderness tabernacle proper, where only Moses could hear God's voice while Moses was inside the tent. But on occasion, Aaron could hear God's voice, but only when Aaron was in the courtyard, not inside the tent. But anyone, not just Moses and Aaron, could seek an oracle from God at the tent that was located on the outskirts of the camp. Exodus 33, 7. Moses would take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far away from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting, Oel Moed. Everyone who wanted to consult Adonai would go out to the tent of meeting outside of the camp. Now the real $64,000 question in all this is, so then where was the ark located? Was it in the outer tent? or the one at the center of camp. And the typical argument is that it had to be located at the wilderness tabernacle in the center of the camp. Yet we find that Joshua was stationed permanently inside the tent that was located outside, probably as a guard of some kind, and we find the same thing with Samuel hundreds of years later. So the presence of God was always within a tent. And as far as we know, it was always above the ark. But there's a lot of doubt as to whether or not there was only one authorized tent for that ark. For sure the ark 
always required a shelter to be far from the gaze of any human, including Moses and the high priest, except for once per year on Yom Kippur. Moses, by the way, in my point of view, did not enter the Holy of Holies to communicate with God. There are some that will argue that and say, yes, he did. The only place where we can really find that for sure he did was on the tense inauguration. But after that, and this is, this is rabbinic tradition, he spoke outside the inner veil. He stood at the veil, alright, and spoke through the veil to God. Right. Now there are others who will disagree with that. That's fine. Okay. Now, <clears throat> I suspect that the ark was moved back and forth at God's command between the outer tent and the inner, t- between the tent on the outside and the tent in the middle. One thing seems clear though. It is not necessarily, as it is usually taught, that the only divinely authorized place for the Ark of the Covenant was what we commonly call the wilderness tabernacle. Apparently the Lord, on a somewhat case-by-case basis, could determine where it resided. Thus, and this is for you that have really studied the Bible, a long time into the future we're going to find King David calling for the ark to be brought to him in Jerusalem. You remember that? It first, though, goes to the personal home of a Levite named Obed-Edom. And then, in time, it was housed in a tent that David erected in Jerusalem especially for it. This tent, for sure, was not the wilderness tabernacle. And we are specifically told that as a result of that ark being in um, Obeyed Edom's home, his whole household was blessed. And there is no consequence, there is no negative statement either about David later housing it in a tent that he had built for it. So there's a lot of mystery about this. And we have to be careful not to get horribly rigid on this subject. Okay. Anyway, God is thoroughly upset with Moses' sister and brother for openly questioning Moses' station with the Lord. And now God is going to handle it his way. Moses is the accused and Aaron and Miriam the accusers. So, they all have to be present before the great judge of the universe while he decides this matter. And in the next four verses, God directly speaks to Miriam and Aaron. In fact, he tells them, come forward and hear my words. Oh man, I don't know if I want to hear that or not. Not in the tone that must have been in. Talk about shaky knees. That is, the accusers, the rebels, are separated from Moses. And some Hebrew commentaries even suggest that Moses didn't hear what Yehovah said to Aaron and Miriam because it was a private conversation. Now, what is said is kind of a combination 
of high praise and vindication from Moses, along with some brutally frank chastisement towards Miriam and Aaron. And God says that Moses is in a class all by himself. That among all men on the face of the earth, Moses is unique. In other words, get this Aaron and Miriam, you just don't rank there with Moses. Okay. Actually, no other individual alive breathed the rarefied air that Moses breathed at that time. That is the meaning of the discourse in verses 6 and 7 when God explains that when he decides to make a man or a woman a prophet of his, he does this by making himself known to that person, not directly, but by means of a dream or a vision. He speaks to that person in a dream. But when it comes to Moses, Jehovah deals with him in an entirely different manner. God deals with him face to face, in audible conversation, and not in riddles. Okay. Further, God shows more of himself to Moses than he does to any other man. Actually, where our complete Jewish Bible and most other Bibles say that God speaks to Moses face to face, it really says that God speaks to Moses pay shall pay, which literally means mouth to mouth. In Hebrew, the use of the term face means presence. God's presence. So even though it's true that God and Moses speak presence to presence, this verse is getting at something more. That the communication amounts to direct revelation. While Moses is fully conscious, he's not asleep, and it represents the concept that this two-way dialogue is going on. Now let's dissect that a little bit more. Moses has been given an unprecedented position among men. He serves Almighty God in a direct manner, and therefore Almighty God deals with Moses in a very direct manner. God establishes prophets, Miriam, high priests, Aaron, in an indirect manner. He made laws and ordinances that were to be carried out by men to establish the line of high priests and to put each succeeding high priest into power. And the Lord consecrates prophets in a kind of clairvoyant way by somehow putting visions of himself along with the declaration that he has declared that person to be his prophet within the unconscious mind of that chosen person. Then he gives that prophet the messages that he once passed along to mankind or but, but he does this by means of dealing with these prophets rather mysteriously in visions and dreams and, as he says, in riddles. But with Moses, it's different. With Moses, the contact with God is as close as it gets between the fleshly and the spiritual. God has conversation with Moses just as you and I would think of conversation. A dialogue. I say something. You respond to it. I say I don't understand. You elaborate. Would that be an amazing thing? A give and a take. An exchange of information goes on. 
This is what went on between Moses and God. Of course, God was supreme. Moses submissive. But the whole concept is that God could be swayed by Moses. And, that his, and of course, that would have to be according to his will. But God at times would give in to Moses. Even more, Jehovah makes it clear that he has put Moses in charge of all of his household. Let us be clear what God means by this. The Lord's household, at least on earth, is Israel. The Lord established his household with the creation of Israel as a people set apart for himself. Jehovah put Moses in charge of that household by means of declaration. In other words, Moses was just an ordinary flesh and blood man. He was no better or worse inherently than any other man. But God divided, elected, and separated Moses away from all other men for his own good reasons. And then he declared Moses to be the master of all of his household. Just as Pharaoh declared Joseph to be master of all of his household, which was Egypt. Moses bears God's authority and power, just as Joseph bore the power and authority of Pharaoh back in Egypt. Yet Moses wasn't God Almighty. And neither, of course, was Joseph the Pharaoh of Egypt. Now that Miriam and Aaron understand the position of Moses, and that unlike a high priest, there is no pre-established line of succession for what happens after Moses is gone, there is no vote, there is no approval of the people to decide who's going to be in charge of God's household. There is no democracy set up here. God voices his anger against those who would dare to speak against such a God-appointed, set-apart mediator as Moses and that there's going to be a price to pay for rebelling against him. Now the price... The wages of this rebellion was that Miriam was stricken with what most Bibles will say is leprosy. Wrong. She was stricken with Surat. Indeed, Surat was a skin disease, but it wasn't leprosy. Leprosy wasn't even known in that part of the world until hundreds of years later. Besides, the Hebrew word used here, Surat, doesn't indicate a specific skin disease. There were several different levels and kinds of serot that ranged from pretty minor to very serious. But key to understanding the term serot is that it is a spiritually based infliction. It's the outward manifestation of one's inward and hidden condition. It's a God thing whereby Sarat is a punishment or a disciplinary action upon an individual that's been divinely caused. Now, there is no mention of a punishment upon Aaron, and I have no idea why. But this is not the first time we've seen Aaron led rather easily into sin, is it? I mean, he did so when the people cried to him to build a golden calf. And he was reluctant, but he still did it anyway. Okay. This is a pretty good reminder to us that even though Aaron was a high priest, he's still just a man. 
He wasn't any less or more sinful in nature than those beneath him. He didn't have his evil inclination surgically removed when he became the high priest. Temptations were still placed in his way just as for us modern believers, and he failed from time to time, again just like we do, no matter what his intent was. And in brief, look at the pattern set up here for Moses. The pattern of how the Messiah would be established. He would be declared. He would be spoken into existence. Even though he was on the one hand human, his position as as Messiah, he had no human peer. The Messiah was to be God's trusted master over his entire household. And who is God's household? Israel. And all who would be joined to Israel by means of those covenants that were given to Israel. Jesus was given all of the Father's authority over men. Men would come against the Messiah and say that this man doesn't have anything they don't. That they're just as close to God. They hear from God. They have just as much standing with God as Yeshua. That would be their claim. They, that as great as God's appointed prophets are and were, that as superior and important as the high priest absolutely was, this mediator was above them all. That the great mediator would have God's own spirit in him. And if others were to have God's spirit, it would have to be drawn from Moses and later Yeshua's body. The Messiah would be humble, meek, enough. He would not come as a great world leader seeking to rule in his own power. Rather, he would be a reluctant leader, but always willing to bow to the will of the Father. The Messiah would not be an intermediary being. He would be a mediator and an intercessor. He was not some other kind of being. He was fully man. And yet, he was fully God. Not a hybrid of the two. Not something halfway in between a God and a man, like an angel. And let me emphatically state that while the mediator, intercessor attribute of Moses was fully carried out in Yeshua, that certainly the aspect of Christ being fully God and fully man was totally unique to Yeshua. That was something that Moses was not, because there could only have ever been one with that mysterious, inscrutable characteristic, and that one is Messiah Yeshua. Then in verse 11, we're introduced to yet another piece of the pattern that would be established in Moses and then followed in Messiah. Aaron, even though God's presence is right there with him, pleads forgiveness of his sin, and guess who he pleads to? Moses. Aaron says to his brother Moses, Oh my Lord, count not to us the sins which we committed in our folly. Holy mackerel. What was Aaron thinking? 
He calls Moses my Lord and asks Moses not to count their rebellion as sin. Trust me, this is not like you or I asking someone we've offended to forgive us. This is not Aaron asking Moses as a brother to accept his apology. We offend people, but we sin against God. Is this not exactly how we're to approach Yeshua? Are we not to ask Yeshua, my Lord, please do not count against us the offenses that have been committed against the Father? Aaron finally got it. Now he understands the lofty position of Moses. He understands that Moses is God's appointed mediator and intercessor. And while it was not Moses per se who was going to do the forgiving, it was Abba, the father. There was no approaching God for the people of Israel except through Moses. And whatever Moses decided on a matter... And he spoke it to the people as his decision. It was done in the power and the authority of the Almighty Father. We pray by means of our mediator, Yeshua. We pray to the Father. We do not pray to the mediator as the source of the power and authority. Jesus says all power and authority were given to him. Who gave him that power and authority? Jehovah, the Father, gave it to him. When asked by Jesus just how we should pray, and this occurred after he made clear that he was God, he said, Jesus said, we should pray what? Our Father. And Jesus himself prayed, Our Father, Yeshua was God. He wielded the power and the authority of the Father, but he's not the Father. Rather, he's Yeshua, the Word, who is God, the Son. Don't ask me to make this any easier to understand. Alright? I can't. This leaves us with a giant mystery. I totally understand that. You know what? I think we ought to just accept this amazing mystery that it is. Because if it was fully comprehensible to our minds, fully rational and logical and scientific, where's the need for faith? Mankind has tried to drop all kinds of models and use all kinds of human words and phrases to find the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and perhaps some other manifestations of God, like the angel of the Lord. And these attempts fall so short that they seem inevitably to send us off on wild goose chases and result in some of the strangest doctrines. Let's just observe the Messiah patterns of Joseph and Moses, except what Jesus said about his relationship to the Holy Spirit and to the Father, and get all we can from that and leave the rest of it alone. Okay. So in verse 13, Moses' mediator takes Aaron's request to heal his sister Miriam from the divinely wrought Zerat that was now upon Miriam, and he takes it to the Lord. Now I can tell you with full confidence that Miriam was healed right on the spot, even though 
It doesn't specifically say so. Right at that moment, she was healed. How do I know that? Because of the Levitical laws concerning impurity and the rituals of purification. Jehovah answers Moses by saying, let her be shut out of the camp for how long? Seven days. Don't let the part about if her father spat in her face send you up some rabbit trail. Okay, It simply means that if a woman's father found her at fault and, and humiliated her for her indiscretion, that he would send her away from him for a time. Okay. Notice the comparison made between a stillborn baby in verse 12, one who died in the womb for one other reason, and the sarat that affected Miriam. This sarat was a kind of death, just as the death of the unborn child. But Miriam's condition is not compared to the death of a baby because Miriam was in danger of physically dying from her sarat. Generally, Surat, despite the many Hollywood movies to the contrary, was not a deadly disease. But it was often very disfiguring. The comparison is because biblically, true death, eternal death, is separation from God. And the Levitical laws separated a person who was ritually unclean from God. They were in essence in a state of spiritual death. Their souls, their spirits were as dead and rotting away like that of a stillborn infant. That was the comparison. And the skin condition called Sarat then was merely this outward manifestation of the inner dead that was rotting away. So Miriam faced the standard procedure for anybody who contracted Sarat. They had to be put outside the camp because they were ritually impure. They had to be separated from God's people because they were separated from God. Miriam was put outside of the camp for seven days and here is how I know that she was immediately healed by God when Moses asked for it. The normal ritual period of cleansing for a person who has had Sarat is seven days. And the period does not start until that person is free of all signs of Sarat. In other words, until that person no longer has Sarat, the clock that counts down that seven day period doesn't start ticking. This is a principle, a law that applies to virtually all the purification rituals. The cause of the ritual impurity first has to be gone before the prescribed period of cleansing can then begin. Further, this whole scene is eerily similar to a time when Moses first met God and he wanted proofs about who God was and what the extent of God's power amounted to. Recall that Jehovah told Moses to put his arm inside his cloak, and when he pulled it out, it says his arm was white with Sarat. But when God instructed him to put his diseased arm back into his cloak, the healing was instantaneous and complete. In essence, 
The same thing was afforded Moses' sister, the prophetess Miriam. She was struck with sorrow to reveal her inner sinful condition that led to her preposterous accusation against Moses. But then the Lord, just as quickly, healed her once the point was made. And because of Miriam's great standing within the community of Israel, all Israel remained at Hazrot, where they were camped until Miriam's seven-day period of purification ended. Now look, this was no small thing. All Israel paid the price of Miriam's sin and rebellion by having their journey to the promised land delayed by a whole week. Those of us who are leaders and teachers and pastors or prophets need to understand that when we exhibit sin, we can harm those who we lead and we teach and that who we're appointed to care for. When we get full of ourselves and we teach speculation as fact or men's doctrines as God's truth or make predictions that are of our own minds and they're not from God, then we not only commit sin, we impede those to whom we're responsible to minister. And you know what? We're going to be held accountable for it. Now, this chapter ends by telling us that after that seven days passed, Israel moved on from Hasrot to Paran, which is a desert wilderness area. And likely where they next camped for an extended stay was going to be Kadesh. And we'll start chapter 13 next time.